Chapter 15 By experience, says Roger Asham, we find out a short way by a long wandering. Not seldom that long wandering unfits us for further travel, and of what use is our experience to us then? Tess Durbeyfield's experience was of this incapacitating kind. At last she had learned what to do, but who would now accept her doing? If before going to the Durbervilles she had vigorously moved under the guidance of sundry gnomic tests and phrases known to her and to the world in general, no doubt she would never have been imposed on. But it had not been in Tess's power, nor is it in anybody's power, to feel the whole truth of golden opinions while it is possible to profit by them. She, and how many more, might have ironically said to God with St. Augustine, Thou hast counselled a better course than thou hast permitted. She remained in her father's house during the winter months, plucking fowls or cramming turkeys and geese, or making clothes for her sisters and brothers out of some finery which d'Urberville had given her, and she had put by with contempt. Apply to him she would not, but she would often clasp her hands behind her head and muse when she was supposed to be working hard. She philosophically noted dates as they came past in the revolution of the year, the disastrous night of her undoing at Trantridge, with its dark background of the chase, also the dates of the baby's birth and death, also her own birthday, and every other day individualised by incidents in which she had taken some share. She suddenly thought one afternoon, when looking in the glass at her fairness, that there was yet another date of greater importance to her than those, that of her own death, when all these charms would have disappeared, a day which lay sly and unseen among all the other days of the year, giving no sign or sound when she annually passed over it, but not the less surely there. When was it? Why did she not feel the chill of each yearly encounter with such a cold relation? She had Jeremy Taylor's thought that some time in the future those who had known her would say, It is the, the day that poor Tess Derbyfield died, and there would be nothing singular to their minds in the statement. Of that day doomed to be her terminus in time through all the ages, she did not know the place in month, week, season, or year. Almost at a leap Tess thus changed from simple girl to complex woman. Symbols of reflectiveness passed into her face, and a note of tragedy at times into her voice. Her eyes grew larger and more eloquent. She became what would have been called a fine creature. Her aspect was fair and arresting. Her soul, that of a woman whom the turbulent experience of the last year or two had quite failed to demoralise. But for the world's opinion, those experiences would have been simply a liberal education. She had held so aloof of late that her trouble, never generally known, was nearly forgotten in Marlotte. But it became evident to her that she could never be really comfortable again in a place which had seen the collapse of her family's attempt to claim kin and through her even closer union with the rich Durbervilles. At least she could not be comfortable there till 
long years should have obliterated her keen consciousness of it. Yet even now Tess felt the pulse of hopeful life still warm within her. She might be happy in some nook which had no memories. To escape the past, and all that appertained thereto, was to annihilate it, and to do that she would have to get away. Was once lost, always lost, really true of chastity, she would ask herself. She might prove it false if she could veil bygones. The recuperative power which pervaded organic nature was surely not denied to maidenhood alone. She waited a long time without finding opportunity for a new departure. A particularly fine spring came round and the stir of germination was almost audible in the buds. It moved her as it moved the wild animals and made her passionate to go. At last, one day in early May, a letter reached her from a former friend of her mother's to whom she had addressed inquiries long before, a person whom she had never seen, that a skilful milkmaid was required at a dairy house many miles to the southward, and that the dairymen would be glad to have her for the summer months. It was not quite so far off as could have been wished, but it was probably far enough, her radius of movement and repute having been so small. To persons of limited spheres, miles are as geographical degrees, parishes as counties, counties as provinces and kingdoms. On one point she was resolved. There should be no more d'Urberville air castles in the dreams and deeds of her new life. She would be the dairy-maid Tess, and nothing more. Her mother knew Tess's feelings on this point so well, though no words had passed between them on the subject, that she never alluded to the knightly ancestry now. Yet such is human inconsistency that one of the interests of the new place to her was the accidental virtue of its lying near her forefather's country. For they were not Blakemore men, though her mother was Blakemore to the bone. The dairy, called Talbothays, for which she was bound, stood not remotely from some of the former estates of the D'Urbervilles near the great family vaults of her grand dam and their powerful husbands. She would be able to look at them, and think not only that D'Urberville, like Babylon, had fallen, but that the individual innocence of a humble descendant could lapse as silently. All the while, she wondered if any strange good thing might come of her being in her ancestral land, and some spirit within her rose automatically as the sap in the twigs. It was unexpended youth, surging up anew after its temporary check, and bringing with it hope and the invincible instinct towards self-delight. <laughs>